Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. I know that there's been a, a few uh, texts already going around uh, saying that a common Easter refrain, he has risen, and the response is, some of you have said it at home, he has risen indeed. So this is uh, a glorious day, a glorious remembrance for us to think about the resurrection, although as I mentioned in the email I sent out earlier that every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. We are the fruit of Christ's resurrection every time we gather together as his people. Every time we remember the Lord's Supper together, we anticipate his return, which is founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our entire lives are a reflection of the resurrection because his resurrection life is in us by the spirit. And so the resurrection is the very center and foundation our faith. If Christ wasn't risen from the dead, as Paul said, then we are most men to be pitied. Uh, but because he was risen from the dead, we are of all of the, the redeemed, are of the most privileged of all of creation to participate in the fruit and to share in the fruit of his work on our behalf. So happy Easter and happy uh, Resurrection Day to you. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll open up God's word together. I know it's hard for us not to be together. Um, we are floating the idea uh, of possibly having something where we can uh, see each other in the future, some technology. But in either case, whether that works out or not, I know it's a challenge for us not to be physically present uh, with one another. But we are thankful for, of course, uh, video is as uh, has been mentioned many times, that we can at least gather together around the word and worship our Savior uh, with one another. So with that, let me, let me pray, and then we'll uh, look at our passage this morning. So pray with me. Father, thank you for the glory of the resurrection. You have indeed affirmed for us all of the saving work of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all that you have designed before the foundation of the world to accomplish in him, namely our salvation and the reconciliation of all things to yourself, a glorious kingdom, a wonderful hope, a majestic future for all of those who are in your son. And we long for that day to be united, our Lord, with you, we long to see you return from heaven with the glory of the angels, the glory of the Father. We long to see your kingdom established for the corruption of this world to be forever removed and the new heavens and the new earth, our ultimate and final home, uh, to be realized. And words secure that hope within our hearts and strengthen it as we live day by day learning to lean on you and learning to trust you. And even as we open your word this morning on this great resurrection day, encourage our hearts by the truth of all that you have prepared for us in Christ Jesus. And it is to that end I pray in your name, O Lord. Amen. Well, before I introduce our passage this morning, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. That is where we're going to find ourselves in Romans chapter 8. And we will be covering verses 12 through 25, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 25, a large section. And there is so much there. Clearly, we're not going to be able to look at it in detail and unfold every theme uh, that we would normally want to. Uh, but we do. I do want to give us a broad picture here of the glories that Paul talks about in this uh, wonderful section of Scripture that are all grounded and related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I particularly chose this passage because of our circumstance. The very reason that we're meeting together like this is because we are restrained by a virus, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 and other names. It, it goes by, we are restrained because of its negative effect and its dangerous effects uh, to, from meeting together. And it is because of these kind of tragedies that are certainly not new to human existence. And in terms of our awareness of what goes on in the world, not new to us. We know of hundreds of thousands killed in tsunamis, and we know of thousands killed in earthquakes. We know of diseases throughout the history of the world that have killed tens and tens of millions. And uh, those kind of things are a part of this part or this phase of God's work in creating the world. It is 
a world under the corruption of sin. And so I wanted to choose this passage and relate it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, because it seems particularly appropriate to our circumstances uh, this morning and on this very day. Again, as we would look at a creation, it would we who uh, know Christ particularly and put it in the right perspective, know that that the world that we live in, the creation that we live on, live on is not yet or is not what it should be and is not yet what it will be. And by saying that, uh, we do not declare that God created anything deficient. That is what unbelievers want to say. That is what uh, atheists or evolutionists want to say. How could a God so good create a world so bad and so full of so full of destruction and so full of those things that bring about misery. God, of course, did not create it that way, but it entered into that state with the entrance of sin. Sin brought death and sin brought corruption and destruction to everything that God created good. And yet in the very account of the entrance of sin into the world, God gave us a promise. He gave us hope. He gave us a word of hope, a word of the promise of redemption, that all that was lost in the fall would one day be restored by God's doing. What man corrupted, God would restore, in fact, with even greater beauty and wonder. This promise was made right after the entrance of sin into the world. Genesis 3.15, God promised to send one who would destroy the works of Satan and destroy Satan himself. And this is climaxed in the appearing of Jesus Christ and all that God promised was accomplished in his atoning death and in his resurrection from the dead. It was inaugurated with the coming of the spirit and is now the hope of all of God's people with a fuller realization and understanding than any of God's saints before the coming of Christ had. And so we then live in this present age in a tension. We live in the tension of what we what will be, but yet is not here, is not present. We have the first fruits, as it were, of this new age to come in the spirit. And yet all of its glories and fullness are still future. We don't know them yet. Our bodies, as well as creation in this present age, still bear the marks of sin and still bear the burden of sin while our deepest longings long for that freedom of sin forever. So we live in a kind of tension, a tension of what we now possess in part and what we long to possess in all of its fullness in the future to come. Now, this is, as I mentioned, an extremely deep, rich and profound portion of scripture. And Paul brings these things together here in Romans chapter eight in a wonderful way. And he does it under the idea of talking about our inheritance in Christ, our inheritance in Christ. And so the broad point is this, and uh, I put this actually in the email of those who got it, so I don't have to repeat it or if anybody wanted to write it down, uh, you won't struggle trying to do that. Uh, it is this, that our union with the resurrected Christ by the spirit grounds our hope of our inheritance, grounds the hope of our inheritance. And what is our inheritance? Our inheritance is this, the world to come at the revelation of Christ in glory from heaven. That is the hope of our inheritance, the world to come. Now this morning, I wanna consider just four aspects of this inheritance that we have with the resurrected Christ that enables us to persevere in hope. So let's begin by reading the passage and then we'll look at these together. And again, we're gonna, we're gonna cover a large section of scripture. And so it is, as you can imagine, very hard not to develop all that we would want to, but I want us to get the overall and the big picture and sense, the wonder of what God has promised to us in Christ. So let's begin in verse 12, and I'll read down to verse 25. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Tremendous, tremendous passage of scripture. And so I want to begin here in verses 12 through 17 and note the grace of our inheritance. And what is the grace of our inheritance? It is our adoption in Christ by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit who brings us into the fullness of our adoption in Christ by uniting us to him. Adoption is a glorious theme of Scripture, a glorious theme of our redemption. It is a reality that reaches all the way back to God's purposes in creation to begin with. So in other words, it was in the heart and the mind and the intentions of God, part of the intentions of God in creation. We're reminded of this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We were adopted in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it is a theme that reaches all the way back in shadow form into the Old Testament. Israel was referred to as God's son. Israel was his son that he redeemed. The idea became more personal in the Old Testament in the anticipation of a son who would be of the fruit of David. They are the sons of God in a unique sense, in an adoptive sense, really. And it applied to all of the kings of Israel, but still anticipated a future realization. Indeed, this idea of sonship, this idea of what it means to be a son of God was ultimately climaxed in the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was declared to be the son of God and the son of man. He was the perfect son of Israel. He was the perfect son where Israel was the disobedient son. He was the son who fulfilled all that God had intended in sonship, but could never be fulfilled by fallen man. He was indeed the son of David, and were all of the sons that were descendants of David before and sat on the throne of Israel failed because of their sin. He was the son, the promised son that would never fail. He was the very encapsulation of what it means to be a son. And indeed, this finds its highest expression in his identity as the eternal son of God. In other words, God, the son. This idea of sonship is then inherent to his very person, to his very person and his relationship to the father within the Godhead. He required and displayed, he fulfilled the requirement of a son, of a perfect son, and displayed in every way the glorious, the glorious realities of sonship. And he accomplished for us everything that could never be accomplished by man, as the whole history of Israel and our own history display. So the glory of this reality is at the very heart 
of our own identity as those adopted as sons and daughters, adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. By his appearing and his redeeming work on our behalf, we were brought to share in his own relationship with the Father as adopted children of God. This is the very point that Paul is bringing us into here in verses 12 through 17. He says then that we as those who share in this spirit of Christ, who share in this adopted reality, we are then identified as sons of God. Verse 14. Why? Because we possess the spirit of God, which he earlier identified as the spirit of Christ and the spirit of the father who raised Christ from the dead. It's not a spirit of slavery, but it is the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Those are words echoed even by Jesus himself. And then we are reminded there that he has brought us into this glorious intimacy of familial love. We as Christians are a part of the family of God in Christ, in Christ. And this relationship of being sons and daughters that we have is demonstrated by two realities that he addresses here in Romans 8. The first is the reality of our holiness. He had just said in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. How do you know that we have this life that the spirit gives to our mortal bodies, that by that life, by that life-giving spirit, by the Holy Spirit, we are putting to death the deeds of the body. In other words, we are growing in holiness. And the second evidence of that is that as we grow in holiness, as we are marked by those being led by the spirit of God, which is led into holiness, led into obedience primarily, we are also those who enjoy through that life and in that life a particular intimacy. Again, as was just mentioned there in verse 15, we who have the spirit of adoption cry out, Abba, Father. But here's where I want to point us is to this last part. By evidence of being the sons of God, by evidence of being adopted children of God, we have not only the forgiveness of our sin, not only intimacy with the Father, but in the Son and the Spirit, but we have in Christ an inheritance, an inheritance. Look at what he says in verse 16, and this is what I want to focus on. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Our adoption brings us into a participation in the inheritance of everything that Christ gained by his death and by his resurrection. We have a promise and the promise is of an inheritance it is a present promise, and it is for the full realization of that inheritance that we eagerly wait for Christ's return. We eagerly await for him. And the Spirit enables us to wait even in the most hostile of conditions. And he says here in verse 17 that if we share in the life of Christ, if we share in the glories of our inheritance in Christ, then we share also in the sufferings of Christ and that means that as we live out the reality of our life in Christ, that we also live with the consequences of the hostility of a world still under the corruption of sin. So the first point I want to establish is here, namely the grace of our inheritance, that we are adopted sons and daughters. As adopted sons and daughters who give evidence of this adoption by the Spirit, we share in Christ's life. We share in his holiness. We share in the intimacy that he has with the father. And we also share in his inheritance. And it is that inheritance, which is our hope. So note, secondly, the glory of our inheritance. What is the glory of our inheritance? It is the surpassing wonder of the new creation. 
Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's an amazing and an astounding statement. Absolutely astounding statement. As a matter of fact, I would say that that statement is out of all of the New Testament, one that more than any captures the glory of what is promised to us in Christ. It captures for us the glory of what God has intended to bring to us at the return of Christ. He does not consider in verse 18, and we should not consider then if we understand God has prepared for us. What kind of suffering is he talking about? Well, we've already mentioned this. It is suffering with Christ. It is a suffering that comes along with being named with Christ. It is primarily that suffering that comes as a result in this fallen world of our commitment to Christ, of our bearing the marks of his life in us. As a matter of fact, if you looked over at verse 36 of chapter 8, he says, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And so he, he mentions there, well, tribulation, if you looked up at verse 35, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, all of these things that come as a consequence of living in a fallen world. There, he says, is suffering that God's people are to expect. It's suffering that has marked God's people throughout the ages. It is Primarily that suffering that comes from bearing the marks of Christ. It is the, the persecution that Jesus says was a part of being in the kingdom in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when men insult you for and persecute you for the sake of his name, for the sake of being identified with him. It's suffering that's throughout the epistles of the New Testament that has accompanied following Christ, suffering at the hands of the Jews, suffering at the hands of Rome, suffering at the hands of all of those who would be opposed to the name of Christ. However, it is possible as well, although that is the primary sense, to broaden this out in the, in the larger context of both the book of Romans and chapter 8 itself, to include all of the kinds of suffering as well, all of the kinds of difficulties that we experience by bearing within us still the reality of sin, the reality of sin, by living in a world under the conditions of sin, under the conditions of the fall. And this would include, indeed in part, in a secondary sense, even what many are experiencing in the world is experiencing now through COVID-19 and, and the kind of and the kind of uh, things that come to bring distress and death and harm into this creation. It could include all of the disease and the disappointments, the pain and the sadness and the frustrations of life. Everything that God ultimately in verse 28 says that he includes to work or he intends and sovereignly does work together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ. Whatever it is, though it's primarily here the sufferings that come from living righteously in this world, sufferings that come from our faith in Christ, really all of the sufferings, all of the discomforts, all of the disease, all of the frustrations, all of the fears, all of the pain, all of the sadness that includes the sufferings of living in this present world pale in comparison to the glory that is promised to us. And of course, the striking statement in verse 18 is this, that they are not worthy to be compared. They are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, on the, on the scales of value, that is indeed a value statement, he doesn't even consider that the idea should be proposed. So, so much is the disparity, so much is the chasm, so much is the distance between those two things that they don't even belong on the same comparison scale. Here then is an emphasis of the glory that is to come to God's children. But what is this glory? What is this glory? He says it is the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is a question about what this glory is. It's fairly clear from the context. It's not the intermediate state. 
It certainly isn't that because it's something that still creation is groaning and waiting for. It involves all of the universe. It's not merely a private kind of glory. It is a glory that is experienced with all of God's redeemed in all of the universe. It's not the intermediate state, as wonderful as that is. It's better to depart to be with Christ than it is to be here. It certainly includes the millennial kingdom, the promise that of Isaiah 11, where Christ will come and the lion will lay down with the lamb, the, the effects of the curse will be removed, the nations will bring their glory and bring with, uh, to, with Israel to Jerusalem, this, this time coming where there will be a rejuvenated earth, this time of wonder where Christ will sit on his glorious throne on earth, reigning over a redeemed people. It includes that. It includes that. But ultimately, however, this is the glory that looks to the end of our salvation, and that is the new heavens and the new earth. That is what we ultimately hope for, the new heavens and the new earth on in resurrected bodies. This was the promise given to the old in the Old Testament. This was the promise that God's people looked forward to. Yes, it was to be in the land with David ruling and over them and shepherding them, but it extended even beyond that. In Isaiah 65, 17, he says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. There is a day coming that will outshine every other day and that will outshine even all of the suffering. In Isaiah 66, 22, he says the same thing, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. But of course, the greatest expression of that glory to come is in Revelation 21, when there is this, after all of the works of God with this first creation are done, including the rejuvenated part of this first creation uh, and the, the millennial kingdom, in the reign of Christ, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And he describes it, and he says in verse 4, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. No longer any, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So when Paul considers all of these glories to come, when he considers the relief that is to come, the joy that is to come, and he, and he meditates on those things, then he looks at what he has to endure here as he waits for them, and he says, oh, I hardly even notice. I'm so raptured and so taken up with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worthy of being compared one said this, weighed in the scales of true and lasting values, the suffering endured in this life are light indeed, compared with the splendor of the life to come. It doesn't mean that there's not a real pain to suffering. If there wasn't, then the, the hope of there being no more pain would make be nonsense. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have any, any, any hold on our heart. There is real pain, there is real sadness, and there should be. In fact, it is the experience of those things that uh, shows our grasp of the reality of sin. Certainly there is. But the point is, is that as, as much as those things are real and as much as those things are experienced, the pain of those things pales in comparison to the joy of the things that are to come. And why is that so? What is it that enables him to give this perspective? What is it about the quality of the world to come that is so much greater than what we experience here? Let me give you just two quickly. One, it's greater in relation to time, in relation to its perseverance, its endurance. It's greater because whatever is experienced here, whether it be pleasure or pain, is only temporary. Pleasure is temporary. Suffering is temporary. In other words, there's nothing in this world that would be worth gaining or worth uh, being protected from, such as in suffering, that would ever come close 
in its weight and in its value to giving up the world to come. Nothing, nothing. As a matter of fact, Jesus putting it not so much in the suffering sense, but if you took all the pleasures of this world, said that nothing that this world could offer, even in terms of its goodness, could match what you would be lose to reject Christ. He said in Matthew 26, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? If you had the sum total of everything this world had to offer, all of its pleasures, at best it would be temporary because you would still have to give an account. You're still going to stand before Christ. And even if you had all of your wildest fleshly dreams fulfilled here, it would be valueless. It would be meaningless. It would even be hated at the time that we have to give an account for our souls. It cannot compare to the glory of following him. Yes, following him is going to be suffering. As a matter of fact, he says that right after he said that he was going to go to the cross. He was going to die for sin. But it was worth it. But it was worth it. Whatever suffering may be experienced here is not worth, is not worthy to be compared with the glories and the wonders of grace and salvation that we gain in Christ. So, the more, so Paul's point here is that the rejection of the gospel for the avoidance of suffering can at best bring only temporary relief, relief from present suffering. But that is far less severe, any present suffering here, than would be the eternal consequences of actually having to bear the weight of our condemnation and the weight of our sin. Whatever someone has to suffer here, it can always be said that it's better than hell. It's better than eternal destruction, even at that sense. But moreover, the point here is that even beyond that, the temporary nature of whatever might be suffered here or endured here in terms of suffering, far greater than that is the glory that is to come. To be with the one who says at your right hand are the pleasures forevermore, forevermore. It's also the quality of the life. It's also the quality of life. Why, why is it that the glory is so much greater? It is because of the very nature of that life and that glory that is promised to us. One, it is eternal. It's not temporary. And two, the beauty and the delights and the wonder of holiness far outshine the consequences of sin, even the pleasures of sin. If we look at it in this sense, every indulging of every longing of the flesh in this world for all of a lifetime is what Jesus was comparing it to in Matthew 16, could never at once compare to the glories and the wonders of life abundantly that Christ came to give. Even the best life here is under the, in a world under the conditions of sin, whereas the life to come in its unending fullness of the Spirit is the uninterrupted experience of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the promise that we have. And so Paul says our adoption in Christ is an adoption to an inheritance. And this inheritance is so wonderful. It's so glorious. It's so enduring that I would do not consider any cost that I pay here of having to gain that inheritance worthy to be compared with it. Because it is so delightful to a soul. But there is, as we anticipate and as we wait for this inheritance, a time of, of groaning, a time of waiting, and that is the next point. There is the grace of our inheritance, which is our adoption in Christ by the Spirit. There is, there is this uh, glory of our inheritance that is so wonderful that it's not the sufferings of this world are not to be compared. But there is also a groaning that we experience for our inheritance. And what is this groaning? It's for the release from our remaining corruption. This is in verses 19 through 23. For the anxious longing of creation also waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This is a vivid picture, a vivid picture of the cosmic participation in this future glory of the sons of God. And he uses this language here that personifies creation to express its participation in this future inheritance, this future glory. And so notice first then he pictures creation as longing. He says the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. And that's really vivid language. When he says eager expectation, it has the idea that term there does of somebody straining their neck to look around. If you were like straining to look around a corner to see something or straining to look over a wall to see something, that's the idea of the term here referred to creation. It's longing, it's waiting, it's anticipating with great fervor and great anticipation all that is to come. Now, why does he mention creation here? If it's the adoption of our inheritance and this inheritance is for believers, those united to Christ, why does he include creation here? Why does he spend so much time making that parallel between creation's longing and our longing? Well, the reality is, is because this creation is a part of our inheritance. Our inheritance is of a world to come a new creation, all of the, the earth and in some sense the universe was made to feel the effects of sin. And it too is waiting, he's saying, for the, its release into the freedom that is promised to the children of God. All of creation fell. All of creation bore the marks and the consequences of sin. Not only man but creation itself. As a matter of fact, and, and this creation, this renewed creation is a part of what is promised to us as children of God. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to mention this again. We're, we're going to go very quickly here. But let me at least put this into your mind. If you went to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and you can just write this down in verse 21 through 23, this is this amazing language, how Paul puts it here to these to the Corinthians. He said then, verse 21, so then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos, whether Cephas, or the world, or life, or death. All things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Everything belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. Part of our inheritance is to receive all that belongs to Christ, and all that belongs to Christ is everything. Is everything. And we inherit that everything with him. So when Paul here talks about in Romans 8, the longing of creation, it is because creation is a part of our inheritance. And it wants to see us receive our inheritance as well. Why? Because it also participates with us. It's a part of it. And it is longing and anxious because it with us lives in the in-between time of not yet having all that is promised to it. We live in the tension of the time in between what we are truly and what we will be. And so he, he gives us a second graphic illustration here. One is in verse 19, the sense of its longing, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. But then he mentions too, what this longing is, what, what, the, what the longing wants freedom from. And that is its presence condition. It's longing for its full potential, but also to be freed from, in verse 20, being subject to futility. In verse 21, slavery to corruption. And again, this is hearkening all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember that when, when sin entered into the world, 
through Adam's sin, when God brought the curse, when God announced the consequences of that sin, what did he say to Adam? Remember? Let me read it to you. In Genesis 3, it was this, the middle of verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you, till, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you are, you shall return. Everything was cursed with the sin that Adam introduced. Consequences of that curse as well. And again, this is personifying language. Then is saying that creation feels the weight of that curse by groaning under the weight and the burden of sin. The groaning here has the idea of, of, of being under undesirable circumstances of, of bearing something that we want to be freed from. It's a sigh of sorrow and sadness. What is the burden? What is the burden that creation shares? Oh, well, we already mentioned it. Let me do so again. First, is it is subject to futility. Subject to futility. Futility has the idea of emptiness, meaninglessness, vanity. Uh, it's used of Idols, to say that idols are empty, they are vain. It's used to speak of the mind of unbelievers in Ephesians 4, 17. They walk in the futility of their mind, the, the vanity and the meaningless of their own thoughts, their own sense of self-importance that amounts to nothing but air and breath outside of Christ. It's, it's subject to futility, to meaningless. And why... Is it futile? What is the essence of its meaningless? And it is essentially this. Its end. The present world, the end of it is destruction. It is destruction. It's like going on a boat that you know is headed certainly and without fail to go over the, the edge of a waterfall which will bring its destruction. And it's like as you're on that boat, everything that you build, all of your designs, all of your plans for the future, whatever is accomplished, you know, is ultimately going to be destroyed. It's going to be ruined. There's a, there's a kind of futility about the works here and, and the wonders here because they're all going to come to an end. It is to say that creation itself with believers feels, using this personifying language, the fact that it can never be what it, what it desires to be. It can never reach its full potentiality. There's a kind of futility to it, a kind of just living and waiting until it all comes to an end anyway and enters into the state that it was truly designed for. It's the same term that translates the Hebrew word that we know as vanity. In Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he says. Why? Paul or Solomon, the author of uh, Ecclesiastes, says essentially that he experienced everything this world could have. And at the end, he found out it was empty. Why? Because it all is going to end in the same. You're rich, you die. You're poor, you die. You're wise, you die. You're foolish, you die. Whatever it is, you die and everything ends. And he sees that you can have a wise man who builds up great works only to be left to a fool and to be destroyed. Their end is the same. So it is foolish to put all of your hope there in this world. It's a futility. It's a foolishness. I think we're struck with this uh, in many ways, though, here he's, he's using the parallel with creation is just the incredible arrogance of man that walks around with such a sense of self-importance because of all the things that are accomplished here. When at the end of the day, all that is accomplished here that is accomplished for only earthly ends is meaningless. It's worthless. I think of that often with our entertainment industry. And how much glory there is, but you see them at the end and they're all old and wrinkled just like everybody else. And they die just like everybody else and put in the grave just like everybody else. And you can have the heritage of all of the works of musicians and politicians and academics and entertainers. And at the end of the day, what have they gained? Nothing that I can guarantee you they wouldn't trade 
if they died apart from Christ to know him. It all would be meaningless. In other words, it, it is a meaningless, even creation feels this. The greatest accomplishments, the most celebrated events, the unbounded pursuit of pleasure or power are all ultimately futile. All of the glories of creation, as glorious and wonderful as they are, are not what they could be. And so creation itself is shackled with restraint that forever keeps it from reaching its full potential. And not only is there a futility to it, it says that it's also wanting to be free from its slavery to corruption. It feels the burden and is under the weight of it. Paul used the same kind of language. We'll mention this a little bit later, but in chapter 7 of Romans, where he says that he still sees that the principle of sin is in him, and he feels the, the, the imprisoning reality in one sense that corruption is a remaining part of his experience now. There's the foretaste of this future and this glory, yes, by the spirits. But as long as we're here in this creation, there is, there is this, the experience of corruption that still remains with us. And creation itself bears this weight. It bears the weight of corruption. Isaiah brings both of these things together in looking towards future judgment. In Isaiah 24, listen to how God speaks of it. He says, behold, the Lord lays the earth waste and devastates it, distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest and the servant like his master. And he goes on, he says in verse three, the earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. Verse four, the earth mourns and withers and the world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. It's empty. Yes, you're exalted now. Yes, you receive the praise of men. And what does it amount to? Your destruction. All of the glories of the world, the things that you, you, you erect to the praise of man and to the glory of man is going to be what? Laid desolate. And the earth itself will be laid in desolate. Look at what he says in verse 5 or in Isaiah 24. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. <coughs> For they transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. Verse 6. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. And those who live on it are held guilty. In verse 19, he says this of Isaiah 24. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. And it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it. And it will fall never to rise again. That's the experience of this creation. It, 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 it bears and it, it feels the weight of the corruption that it has been subject to it. Creation itself bears the weight of sin. And we, we experience this as well. Again, we understand that COVID-19, we're, we're reminded of how weak we actually are, how frail this very creation actually is, that something as small as a virus could destroy economies and nations and change the very landscape of the world in a matter of weeks. How weak we are. And this is only a foretaste. This isn't even the worst that the world has experienced, and it's not even close to what the world will experience when God brings his judgments. But it does remind us that all creation still groans under the effects of sin. It is a reminder that creation is not yet what it will be. And it's interesting. It is, in one sense, what we experience in terms of disease and destruction and natural disasters, a sort of natural evil, sometimes as theologians call it. As we experience this sort of natural evil, these consequences and destructions that come as the result of sin, there is, a, there is a reality where that comes just to all men by the mere fact that we're on the creation that is corrupted, that is groaning. But at the same time, we're reminded that that is not 
merely the happenstance of coincidence, but it is a God who rules over this corrupt creation. And he both judges the creation and as a, as a, as per, as a part of bearing man's sin, but he also uses creation as a means of his judgment. They're both true. He sends plagues. He sends disease. He sends tsunamis. He sends tornadoes. There's a mystery of his providence here, but part of his judgments that are from the Lord in Revelation are disease and sword and famine and earthquakes, things falling from the sky, all that will be a part of his destruction. This is a part of his even using creations on slavery to corruption for his ends. And so we are reminded in them to be humbled. God brings them, as I was reminded in a conversation yesterday, we were talking both to test the church, to purify the church, to remind the world that repentance, to call them to repentance, that this world is short. Things can change in an instant. As much as Jesus' warning to those on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, those who were murdered at the altar in Luke 13, and Jesus' response to them was, you too should need to repent unless you come to the same fate, unless you come to the same end. And so believers, though, what this does is it increases our longing with creation, this longing for what is to come. So yes, it tests believers, but it also reminds believers to live for those things that are eternal, to live for those things that are part of our future home. And so he makes this transition in verse 23. He says, and not only this, not only is creation suffering, not only is creation groaning, not only is creation longing for freedom from its futility, longing for freedom from its corruption to slavery, but we ourselves are having the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Why do we groan and what do we groan for? Well, look what he says in verse 23. What is the source of this groaning? He says, is the fact that we have the first fruits of the spirits. What does that mean? It means that if you're in Christ, if you are a son, then you've had a taste of the goodness of holiness. You have tasted of the, the life in Christ involved with the forgiveness of sin. You have tasted of the intimacy that sonship and adoption brings with the father, what he began with uh, back in verse 15. You've tasted of that. The spirit has brought that. The spirit has brought within your heart the first taste of the new age to come. Your minds and your heart have been renewed to see with spiritual clarity and understanding the beauty and the glory of God in Christ. You have been made to taste of the loveliness of holiness and righteousness in Christ. Your heart has been awakened and enlivened to long for righteousness. You have the first fruits of the spirit. You have a taste of this glory that is to come of this new inaugurated age. And yet, we have sin. And yet we have sin. And yet we have all of these glories that are true and real, encased in a body yet to experience the fullness of redemption. You have the first fruits of the Spirit, and the first fruits of the Spirit, one, fill us with hope, but they always also fill us with longing, longing to be free to what we truly have been saved for and saved to. If you are a Christian, you know this. All of your holy longings, as wonderful as they are and as, and, and as sweet as they are when we have the, the experience of them, that fellowship with God, they're hindered at times by what? By our own sin by our own weakness, by our own unbelief at times. We don't live in a constant state of joy and love and peace and patience and kindness. We're often impatient. We're often anxious. We're often unbelieving. We still have the sin and we, we long to not be that way, but we are. That's why Paul cried out again in Romans 7, who wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? 
He longed to be freed from it. He knew the joys of every of a mind set on the spirit. He knew the joys of the fruit of that, which the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. He knew that, but he also knew it wasn't what it should be. He also knew the realities of sin as well. And we long to be home. And any Christian who has even the smallest amount of obedience can tell you this, that the longer you live with Christ, the more futile this world becomes, the less uninteresting it is. The longer you live in Christ, the more you feel strange here. And you talk to a Christian who's walked with Christ for any length of time, they're just like, I just want to go home. I'm so tired of the foolishness. I'm so tired of my foolishness. I'm so tired of my sin. I'm so tired of the foolishness that I see in the world around me. I'm so tired of the destruction and the pain and the corruption brought about by sin. I'm so tired of the arrogance of man and the pride that resides in my own heart. I just want to be home. I just want to be home. I want to, I want to be with Christ. I want to, I'm just waiting for that world to come. The longer you live with Christ, I think my experience is the same as any believer who's walked with Christ is just the, the silliness and the emptiness of this world just becomes more and more evident. It becomes less interesting, frankly, less and less interesting. Yes, we're so thankful for the many blessings that God gives. Yes, we still delight in things that he has, but they're all pale. They all pale into what we know is ours and him and what is coming. So if you're in Christ, and as you grow in Christ, the longer you live, the more you want to be out of this world and into the next. And that's the groaning. That's the groaning that we have of living in this world that still bears the corruption of sin. We long to be in the full experience of glorification that is promised to us. Verse 30 of chapter 8. He predestines us. He called us. He called us. He justified us. He justified. He glorified. We know that's a reality. We know that it's coming. And we long for it because why? We, by the Spirit, participate in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And so he says, we long for the redemption of our bodies in verse 23. We long to be conformed with the body of his glory. We long to be like him for when he appears, we know that we shall see him just as he is, 1 John 3, 2. Paul uses the same language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll just have to mention this briefly. He says this, what does he say? Right after he gave this incredible statement that parallels what he's telling the Romans, he says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. That's part of the time issue. Nothing here can compare, not the suffering, not the joys. Nothing can compare. It's passing away. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Those will never pass away. They will only get better. And then he says, in light of that, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, for we know this earthly tent is our house. It's torn down. We have a building from God. He's talking here about the resurrection body. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Indeed, in this house we groan, same word, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, in this present body, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. It's what we long for. And so we groan. And so he says in verse 23, we ourselves groan within ourselves for this eternal weight of glory. We groaning eagerly wait for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body, which he describes as 1 Corinthians 15 as being without the effects of sin, incorruptible, imperishable. That's what we long for. That's what we long for. We long for it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the finally, finally he says then, and this I will again, it's mentioned briefly in verses 24 through 25, then we have the guarantee of our inheritance, the hope of our resurrection in Christ. 
What is the hope of our resurrection in Christ? Well, he says it there at the end, verse, end of verse 23, the redemption of our body. That is the resurrection. What is the redemption of our body? Conformity to the body of his glory, Philippians 3, 21. It is that, his resurrection body, we are conformed to it, and that is our hope. And his resurrection gives us that hope. And it is for this we have been saved, verse 24. And we don't see it yet. That's what Paul said. We, we, we don't see it yet. But one day we will, and we long for it. One day we know that we will be glorified with him, that we are even now being conformed to his image, and we eagerly wait for it. For the sin brought into this world by Adam is totally removed the creation that bears its burden is set free into our freedom, which is freedom from futility, freedom from corruption, freedom into the glory of being with God forever. That is the promise. And it's all grounded in Christ. He began this, just I'm going to even just mention these to you. In chapter 4, verses 24 through 25 of Romans, he says he was delivered speaking of Christ over for our transgression. He was raised for our justification. Why do we have this? Because Christ has both died and been raised to accomplish and affirm our justification. He says it again, verse five or chapter verse 18 of chapter five, that through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's Adam's sin. Even so, through the act of one of righteousness, there resulted justification of life for all men. This life, he says in chapter 6, verse 2 through 4, is given to us because of our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so we walk in newness of life. And all of this given to us by the spirit and promised to us and guaranteed to us because of his resurrection. And so we wait in hope. And so in all of these changing vicissitudes and all of these disappointments and all of the, the things that threaten us in this world, we have as Christians hope because of the resurrection of Christ. In hope, we have been saved. Even in hope, the present world was subject to futility by God, as he said, Back in verse 20, the hymn there is the one who subjected in hope is God subjected it, but in anticipation of its future glory. We have been saved to participate in that future glory. And so with perseverance, he says in verse 25, we eagerly wait for it. The resurrection gives us hope. The resurrection grounds our hope. The resurrection sets our worldview. It gives us perspective on everything. And we, it gives us a cosmic perspective. It's not even only about our redemption, but the resurrection hope tells us that the redemption applies to all of creation and all of creation with us in this one harmonious longing waits to experience the fullness of all that we have in Christ in our inheritance. So we hope and so I pray that whatever discouragements that you might have, uh, even at this time, the discouragements brought about by the inconveniences about our longing to be together, there's just so many other discouragements that come that we would remember that this is a part of this world. But we have within us the first fruits of the Spirit. We have within us the promise of a world to come when all these things are done away with. We have within us the promise that we will share in the inheritance of Christ who is head over all things and who has reconciled all things to the Father. Read Colossians 1. That is our hope. And so what do we do? We persevere and we wait and we trust and we meditate on our future home and we think and we realize that whatever we have here is passing away, but what we have gained in Christ will never pass away forever and ever and ever. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great promise and help us to live in hope. Give us this perspective on the world that sees both the, both the temporary glories of this world, but also the suffering of this world in its true nature is that which is passing away 
and help us to lay hold of what is truly ours in Christ. And that is an inheritance of a world to come. Lord, how can we even fathom this? All of the the greatest ideas of Hollywood and storytellers throughout the history of the world could never even come close to the reality of what is true in Christ. All of creation made by Christ, spoken into existence according to the will of the Father, brought about by the Spirit, fallen and experiencing all of the corruptions and the weight and the futility that sin brought into it, but in anticipation of a future fuller and more wonderful and glorious reality of our inheritance in Christ that is ours, that's brought about. When you return Christ in the glory of the Father and all of the holy angels, how pale and dull and uninteresting and forgetful everything else will be and how wonderful and glorious will be that sight. And for all of your people, the longings of our hearts through all the ages will be realized in the resurrection, in the redemption of our bodies, in the entrance into that unhindered and full experience of fellowship and glory and joy that right now we only long for. Help us to persevere. And help us to be marked by people of faith, not generally, but faith in Christ, faith in him who died and was raised from the dead, faith in him whose promises are given to us in scripture, who speaks to us in your word from heaven, and that we would be those who wait with perseverance. Lord, these things we ask and we pray in your name, dear Jesus. Amen.